As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Michael Saka. I'm Joelle Steiniger. And I'm Matt Goldman. And we're having 20-minute talks with entrepreneurs teaching you how to launch your product into revenue. Check out our book at howtobuildarocketship.com to reserve your launch discount and to download a free chapter. In this podcast, we talked with Scott Chisholm, a co-founder of Stay Classic. We talked about his unusual route to raising 1.5 million seed over the course of two years and how mentors and advisors help them grow into one of the biggest nonprofit donation platforms in the world. Stay tuned. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Hey guys, I wanted to take a minute to thank Codeship for sponsoring the show. Codeship makes continuous deployment simple and easy. And we've actually been happy customers of theirs for a very long time. 
you should go to codeship.io slash rocketship to check out videos and tutorials all about how you can start using Codeship to deploy your product in a better way. We'd also like to thank Envision app. Envision is by far the best prototyping and collaboration tool on the market. I can personally say I can't imagine delivering another design comp without it. It made collaborating with our entire team incredibly easy, and the annotation tool alone saved us hours of back and forth. Go to envisionapp.com forward slash rocketship and sign up to get their starter plan free for 90 days. This comes complete with unlimited screens and unlimited collaborators. Trust me, this is an essential tool for teams of all sizes. Welcome to the Rocketship Podcast. We're here with Scott, one of the co-founders of Say Classy. Scott, welcome. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Um, so for those that may not know, uh, tell us what Stay Classy does. Uh, Stay Classy is an online fundraising platform uh, specifically designed for nonprofits and social enterprises. So you can think of it sort of like WordPress is to a, a website, Stay Classy is to a nonprofit's fundraising operation. So we're kind of like the behind the scenes technology that allows them to launch uh, uh, crowdfunding campaigns, events, uh, and integrate deeply into their website to sort of build a fundraising and supporter community. Very cool. Very cool. So where did you guys come, where did you guys find this problem and kind of come up with the solution? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, what we, we didn't start with a, an epiphany moment, uh, if you will. We didn't wake up one day and say, wow, it'd be great to start selling uh, software to nonprofits. Uh, it actually started, it was super, the company's story started with uh, really, really uh, humble beginnings. It was myself and a, a group of my roommates in Mission Bay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sitting in the, uh, an apartment that was, you know, way too dirty and, uh, with beer in front of us and whatnot. And um, we had an epiphany uh, over a few beers um, that, you know, each person in the house had essentially been touched by um, cancer. Someone in their, their family had had uh, either breast cancer or in the case of my friend Pete, his uh, father had passed away from cancer. And we sort of had this moment where we realized uh, maybe we should stop being degenerates and we should actually go out and do something for the, the cancer cause. Um, so we sort of brainstormed, uh, and our genius idea was to host a, a pub crawl for charity for the for the American Cancer Society. And uh, the name, the origin of the name, the company name stems into the, stems into the story as well. Uh, the movie Anchorman happened to be on the background as we were coming up with the the idea for the pub crawl. And my friend Pete turned and said, "Well, you know, why don't we name it Stay Classy?" Right as uh, Ron Burgundy in the movie was saying, "You stay Stay Classy, San Diego." Never in a million years thinking that this would actually turn into a legitimate organization. And now, you know, seven years later, we're still called Stay Classy. And the, the, the origin of the company is, is from Anchorman. So, uh, so, you know, we hosted that pub crawl. We raised $1,000 for the ACS. Uh, we were inspired to do more uh, fundraising events. So you know, I was working uh, full-time at Booz Allen Hamilton doing management consulting, and all my roommates were full-time with other jobs. And basically this became a passion project, just hosting um, you know, charity fundraising events. We started with uh, the cancer cause, but you know, eventually moved into uh, in the environment, with Surfrider, um, veterans uh, support with Warrior, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and until we were supporting dozens of different organizations, hosting huge fundraising events, the biggest one we 
we hosted was a 5,000 person music festival in Mission Bay wow. with headliner Mattis Yahoo, uh, Mason Jennings, Bass Nectar, before anyone knew who Bass Nectar was. Um, and the bass from Bass Nectar's uh, subwoofers literally was like waking my grandmothers up across the bay. <laughs> and they banned uh, all music events in Mission Bay after our concert. We ended up raising like, I think, 20 grand for. Um, uh, San Diego Youth Services. It was a home, youth homeless shelter that they were building. So it was a success from that standpoint. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, no one else is able to host concerts on the bed uh, due to our. <laughs> so, how did you guys transition from events into kind of an online platform? Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, along the way, as our events started getting more sophisticated and bigger, uh, we realized that we couldn't use uh, sort of the ticketing and the fundraising stuff that we had been using um, up to date. Like we were basically, we had built like a band-aid solution with like Evite, PayPal, MySpace at the time, and Facebook. Sure, yeah. um, and basically we were doing like an early version of crowdfunding essentially tied to our events. So people would come, come to the event, they buy a ticket, and then they'd have to go raise some money. Okay. And they were just sending a PayPal link out essentially. Mm-hmm. So we decided that wasn't, you know, sufficient anymore and so we hired a, a developer literally cold called like a guy we had we were engineers but not software engineers okay. and um, he came in and built like the alpha version of state class team was for our own events so the 20 grand we raised from that um, music concert the Montesiago show mm-hmm. was built on the alpha was raised on the alpha version of state class oh nice so we didn't really have the intention to commercialize it but then some of the nonprofit beneficiaries of our, our events said hey you know you, we're paying like thousands of dollars a year for a product that's not even as good as this like alpha thing that you just built like why don't you let us use this okay and so basically we let some of our clients use it got some feedback uh, through there it's just a slow rolling process eventually we said okay we're on to something here like you know we, we understood the market a little bit better over time started to understand the unique challenges of nonprofit organizations mm-hmm. crowdfunding started to get hot at the, around the same time this is like 2009 2010 uh, kickstarter had literally just launched as well uh, and so, you know, we thought that our strength was understanding the unique challenges of nonprofit organizations. So we built basically a fundraising platform that was specifically dedicated to that vertical, uh, and it's worked out. I mean, it certainly nice. has, had, you know, has had its trials and tribulations, uh, yeah. but uh, you know, now we're about forty-five people strong. Um, we've raised some, some decent money, and, uh, and we're, we're growing pretty fast. So it's um, you know, it's been a long ass journey. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about. Um, how you guys have kind of built an advisory board around, you know, where do you guys get your mentorship from um, in order to grow to a company of this size? Yeah. So, I mean, in the early days, we, we you know, people told us, hey, you need to build an advisory board and whatnot. And we just, I mean, when we started, we literally had like no network at all. Like we were first time entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, we we're more or less clueless. You know, I think we had some business acumen, um, of course, but... Um, you know, we really had, had no idea, you know, what it was like to start a company. And so everyone's like, oh, you have to build an advisory board. And so basically we just like, it was like we picked out of a hat. Like we had no idea who we were picking. And we ended up with this really random advisory board, like guys that, you know, were really smart and maybe they had, you know, uh, run companies and stuff, but they were just totally, you know, didn't make sense at all um, to advise our type of company. Okay. Um, you know, like they came from uh, down here in biotech space. So like they were like mm-hmm. biotech executives. You know, like, what does he know about like, running like a startup software company? You know, like, we, we had ages to go before any advice that guy could really give would be useful. Right. And, okay. and no offense to him, it's just, it just didn't make sense at the time. So 
I think say we got better at picking on our advisory board and um, we looked uh, to basically build a combination of people that had direct nonprofit experience, so people that worked for nonprofits that, okay. that could help inform us on their challenges and stuff. And, and continue to um, feed into the product roadmap. And then people that just were really good, like business and SaaS and software. Um, you know, Keaton Shaw is now one of our advisors. Dan Martell is one of our advisors. Uh, Alex Bard is one of our advisors. And those guys have built, you know, they're, they're um, uh, multi-entrepreneurs. They run the multiple several yeah. uh, businesses and stuff, and they've, you know, had their own sense of challenges and they've gone through it. So finding someone that basically has been where you're at, but you know, maybe only a few years ahead of you, okay. I think is a lot better than someone that maybe is like at the tail end of their career mm-hmm. and has been in an executive of like a Fortune 500 company. Like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You need to be more connected, especially in the early days, um, so that the advice they're giving you is relevant to your stage and your sector as well. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. So someone like, I mean, he is incredibly busy. Um, How do you get someone like that to you know, advise and maybe give us a little insight into what that relationship looks like. Yeah. I actually didn't even know. I mean, Alex Bard, I don't know if you know who Alex Bard is, but he um, started desk.com okay. and it was sold to Salesforce for what, 80 million. He's, he's on his third company. That was his third company. And he's like a set, you know, a really good SaaS CEO. And he's the one who introduced me to Heat, but I didn't know Heat originally. I just followed him on Twitter. Okay. And so, you know, just like probably 100,000 other people that are. Yeah. <laughs> right. I was going to say, who doesn't like, follow Heaton on Twitter? Yeah, it's like, you know, I was like, it would be really cool to have Heaton as an advisor. Uh, and again, we're down in San Diego. Like, he's really, really popular within the San Francisco crowds and, and definitely outside of San Francisco as yeah. well, but really popular in San Francisco. And so I was like, you know, I didn't even think that he would necessarily listen. But, you know, it, just like in our early um, uh, attempts at raising money, more or less it comes down to personal introductions like everything um so alex just asked him on the side if he would be okay with the introduction and so he introduced uh me and he and we just jumped on a call and actually the the founding story and the connection to the cancer cause resonated with him oh, and nice. so he was like booked up and he has like a, he has very strict rules for himself is how many bullets is on and things like that and so we snuck in there somehow <laughs> good timing um so yeah, I think we got kind of lucky, and um, you know we were also at a stage where I don't know what his portfolio of sort of advisory companies looks like, but um, I think we were at a stage where we were like right about to sort of hit um, a, a, a good wave of growth, and he could tell that like we were right at that that point where okay. his um, experience with um, customer acquisition, specifically B two B stuff, would be relevant. Okay. Where earlier on, it'd be all about getting product market fit and some of the other stuff, but we had just sort of, we had already kind of gone through that first couple of phases, and we were at the point where we we're looking really looking at the business model, fine tuning the uh, sales and marketing strategy, and, and continuing to experiment down that road. Okay, um, and that's actually what attracted uh, Dan too, Dan Martell, um, and so th- those both those both those guys are really good with acquisition, so they were you know 
exciting. So you were kind of sharing your growth with them Absolutely. through emails, or did you go uh, to meet with them? No, on the phone, actually. I didn't. Okay. He even signed up before I even met him in person. Wow, yeah. that's cool. And then I went up, and we had uh, tea at the, uh, I think it's the Buena Vista Light Tea Center or something up there, on like a hill. And he, and he also taught me how to um, drink tea properly, because I was apparently <laughs> just screwing up all the <laughs> Yeah. So um, I had known Dan through uh, different entrepreneurial events, entrepreneurial events and stuff. But, but yeah, he came on at the same time as he. Cool. So it was kind of like I think it's just a mix of um, who you know who's within a couple of degrees of separation for you, who's like the best person that you could possibly get within your sort of media network. Go after that person, like bring some credibility. I mean, as silly as it is, I mean people operate off social proof. I mean, it comes down advisory boards are the same as investments of. You know, if some it, the fact that he knew that Alex was involved was a big deal. Okay. So he's vouching for us essentially, softly vouching for us just right. by being involved. And uh, you know, our advisory board now it speaks volumes to the investors and, and other stuff like that. So okay. it does make a huge difference. Um, you don't have to rush and get you know build an advisory board in a month. I would actually recommend just you know taking it slow and sort of figure out who's that the best person that's closest to you, get that person involved first, get them really excited about what you're doing, and then sort of have that person help you branch out from there. Cool, and is it like a, oh. So. Uh, so what's the relationship like with your advisors and how do you make the most use of the advice that they have to give? Do you yeah. set up like, you know, monthly meetings? Is it more just whenever you meet them, you pick up the phone and call? Mm-hmm. That's still, so that's something I'm still trying to optimize, to be honest with you. Uh, it's not easy because everyone's super busy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've found that, you know, in the earlier days, uh, a higher touch relationship can be helpful, but it can burn out the relationship a little bit. So you just have to be really, really sensitive to, to everyone's time. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we do now, um, and again, in the earlier days, it probably would have been smarter to do more frequent meeting. Um, but now we do a quarterly call. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, it's it's more of like, hey, if, 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 if I have a question, I just call them up. Um, I don't even think I've had a formal quarterly. That's like what it says in our advisory board agreement. <laughs> I don't even think we've had quarterly calls, okay. really. So, I mean, you kind of, you put some structure in place so there's this, an expectation, but really what ends up happening is like you have a problem and then they just make themselves available, uh, which is a good, that's a good thing. Yeah. And then we try to do um, a meeting with the advisory board just once, once a year. So we have a leadership offsite coming up. Um, and it's actually at the Movember office in LA. The guys who grow the mustaches and raise tons of money. Oh, there's an office for that? Oh, yeah. Oh, they raise $150 million a year. Oh, yeah. Okay. And they're a client yeah. of yours? No, actually, they built their own fundraising platform before we existed. Okay. But Adam Garoni, the global CEO, is on our board, the global board of directors. He, was, he, he started on our advisory board, though. So he was someone from the nonprofit space that we brought in that was like, wow, this guy's raising $150 million through personal fundraising globally. He would have some insights that we could learn from. Um, and so we brought him on, and then we developed a really close relationship with him and he ended up inviting him to the board of directors, um, which is awesome. So anyways, we're having this leadership offsite at his office. So all of our you know management team, whatever, will go there, and then all of our advisors will fly out, and then they'll partake in this, which is really cool. It's the first year we've actually done it like that. Nice. Um, in the beginning, it was more just myself and my co-founder, Pat, um, you know, meeting these guys individually. We'd fly to San Francisco if we're in town. Hey, he, you know, let's get coffee. Let's talk okay. about X, Y, and Z. And we we would typically like send them an email with like one question or one topic. Try to guide it as much as possible. And mm-hmm. in the in the, the really early days, we we tried to set up that quarter official quarterly call, almost like acting like it was a board meeting, and send us like 
a hundred slide deck that was useless. <laughs> and everyone just sat there listening to us. And then by the end, we're like, yeah, I don't know how much we got out of it. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe you should just come with some targeted questions. Yeah. <laughs> we don't really care about all this other stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, so we've kind of learned. So, I mean, it's in, in, and also to like each person, it's good if they, if you're thinking about them from a specialty perspective. So like, you know, Heaton and Heaton and Dan Martell are sort of in the, the acquisition realm. They both have, you know, unique skill sets within there. But um, Alex Barr and I lean to a lot for like leadership and just like general CEO stuff. Um, Adam Caroni from November is amazing at like uh, company culture and uh, vision and mapping out your mission because it comes from the social space. So if you kind of like just like write down why you, what type of advisor you want for your specialty and then sort of try to find that person over time and don't rush it. Okay. That's a good way of looking at it. Uh, and then plan your outreach to them or your interaction based on their specialty. So the leadership offset I've talked about is cool because it's sort of like we're touching everything, but maybe you have a monthly customer acquisition meeting with your management team or your co-founder or whoever, and you bring in one advisor just okay. to like sit in and listen. Sure. So it's unique to every person, but I think you can get creative with it. So you're not just sitting like all the advisors on a, on a call, just like listening to your pitch a deck. Like right. that doesn't really do anything. Uh, so how early did you start to even go after the process of finding an advisor? Was this like pre-funding? Was this pre-product market fit? Um, actually, right when we were raising money initially. Um, so we went through uh, an incubator here in town called Springboard. It's one of the earliest ones. Um, and uh, one of our advisors actually invested the first hundred thousand in the state classic, which was pretty awesome. And right around that time, after we were taking the hundred thousand, we were using that to essentially try to, you know, build up. We rebuilt state classic after um, we had built that alpha version. So we basically rebuilt it from scratch. Used the hundred thousand to do that. Bring on uh, Pete, our VP of engineering, still. Okay. Um, he was the first coder. Uh, bring him on full time, uh, and then we started looking at. Um, Okay, what do we have to prove out? What are the milestones we have to achieve in the next six, eight, you know, six, uh, eight, whatever months? And um, uh, you know, what what type of money are we going to need to hit those milestones? And you know, and so um, coming back to full circle to your question, right when we started mapping out the milestones and the financing, um, we started paying a lot more attention to the advisory board because we knew that from a social proof perspective, like we didn't have a ton of traction yet. So we thought that the advisory board would help give us some credibility with investors. Um, and, you know, I think it did to some degree. We picked some weird ones in the beginning. In mm -hmm. fact, we were in one investor meeting and they looked at the advisory board and they're like, I don't understand your advisory board. <laughs> not kidding. Yeah, it was the Tech Coast Angels. Okay. <laughs> Needless to say, they didn't invest. <laughs> they, they don't a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, glad they, I'm glad they didn't. I'd love to dig into your, your funding a little bit because sure. we constantly read about, you know, your, your seed round is 12 to 18 months, yep. 5500K. You guys did it much different than yeah. the typical um, funding. And it could be because you're in San Diego or um, maybe you guys just saw something different. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you ended up raising, it was almost 5 million yep. seven, from seven million total angel investors, right? 7 million total, 5 million from angel investors. The, uh, so, so part of it is definitely because we were in San, uh, San Diego uh, and there's not a well-established uh, network of investors down here that at least you can tap into. Uh, Tech Coast Angels and some other like sort of groups like that are the only ones and um, they're not necessarily uh, investing in the same, in, in like SaaS software or 
companies all the time. Um, so, you know, I think in the very, very early days, our strategy was like, hey, let's just get in front of anyone that has money that will listen to us. Sure. Uh, we started to find a niche. Like, so, I mean, first, the first guy to invest was the 100000 from our advisor, or the uh, incubator. Okay. And then um, he actually ended up joining the advisory board as well. So I said that. Um, and then we went to, we, we kind of went out and tried to raise money from like more guys like him and it wasn't very successful. So I resorted back to family and friends. Mm-hmm. So I went backwards, <laughs> um, got like, you know, another say total of a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. So we had like 200,000 and we did this, the early days was set up um, outside of that initial hundred thousand that was actually in equity and then the the next million and a half was all in a convertible note and it was it took two and a half two to two and a half years to fill the note up so we just raised it in chunks like it's because we just like we didn't have a network so the beginning we were just fine okay here's who this guy can invest fifty thousand awesome we'll keep the lights on okay this guy can invest twenty five thousand at one point you know someone had committed uh twenty i think it was twenty or fifty thousand dollars and we were like three days away from payroll and we had, you know, we only had like probably five guys on staff and we had never missed a payroll. Uh, and in fact, that's the only time that we've ever been late and we were late by one day. We drove up to LA to find the, the lawyer of the investor who was delaying the process and literally we're just going to go knock on his door and be like, dude, what is going on? Just figure it out. Like, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that was a high stress moment. How does that work when you're, um, like how do you how do you raise that much on a convertible note for those that that aren't familiar? What does that look like in the negotiation process? Yeah, so um, you know convertible notes are a lot more popular even now in the last three years than they were when we were doing it like probably four four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've become there's there's a, lot, a set of standard terms essentially that are involved with in that. And for those people that don't know what convertible note is, I mean essentially it's it's a loan. That automatic in most cases automatically converts into equity at a later date, uh, and typically the investors the reason why they would put money on a convertible note is because they'll get some sort of discount. So when it does convert, say if everyone's converting a dollar a share, they get it at eighty cents a share or something like that. Okay, and so that's one of the terms that you negotiate. So like the discount upon conversion is a big one. Uh, interest. So while they're waiting for it to convert, they get some sort of interest that could be okay. like as low as three percent. It could be as high as ten percent. I think it's like the legal. Um, so they're looking at other investments and saying, okay, well, you know, I'm getting some interest, but it's obviously high risk because it is still very high risk because they don't know if it's actually going to convert because there needs to be a certain amount raised before it actually converts into equity. Okay. Um, so there's all sorts of, you know, little, you know, details there and stuff. Um, and did you guys have a number that you were kind of like so that, raising for everyone? So that's thing. Like we were doing this so early that we had no cap. And basically, like you know, practically no discount. So like, okay. people, like we just didn't even know what we were doing. And like our lawyer gave us like the most company friendly note ever, and we just went out and sold it. And it worked. Yeah, it worked. Like, no one knew any better. We didn't know any better. They didn't know any better. So it kind of worked out. Ultimately, they ended up getting a really good deal because um, it converted at a fair. We we ended up auto converting it into a fair valuation. Okay. Um, and then you know we ended up going on to raise more money and the company's grown. So it worked out. Like they're excited about it. But you would never find a note like that in today's day. Okay. okay. I do some angel investing on the side and like um was pretty strict about exactly what the the cap is and stuff on the conversion. And I always laugh at at what we pulled off. We didn't even know what we were doing. <laughs> no clue. Um, so you know it ended up being I think a fair fair deal, but it yeah. could have been a lot more. 
know, quote unquote, investor friendly okay. in the early days. <laughs> but it gave us the wiggle room, actually, because there wasn't a timeline associated with it, um, more or less. It gave us wiggle room to, to figure our, our shit out. Like we, you know, if, if we've been forced, uh, I think, with a timeline that was too strict, uh, I think it might have broken the company, to be honest. It allowed us to raise it in chunks and like just really sort of figure things out in, in, in um, intervals okay. uh, rather than just bringing in, you know, we didn't even have the luxury to bring in like a million bucks at a time or something. Mm-hmm. But even if we had, I'm not sure what we would have done with a million dollars. Okay. We had a lot to figure out, a lot to prove. That's um, really interesting because I was just going to ask you, like, if you could do it again, would you do it more in like one sprint or two sprints versus this long drawn out raising process? just purely because it takes so much of your time and energy to be out there yeah. trying to raise. Well, it's hugely distracting. I, I wouldn't change anything about how we did it because I think it was crucial to our learning process. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to do another company, I definitely would not have done it like that. But that's <laughs> just because I think I've learned a lot and certainly in a second company, there'd be a whole new set of learnings. But, um, you know, sort of the just the, the more administrative, like how do you start a company stuff that everyone figures out when they're, they're starting out. Um, you know, we've at least got that under our belt now, so it would be different. And I think we have a lot more credibility with investors, so we'd be able to raise in bigger chunks. And, sure. and again, you're, you're weighing, like, the trade-off between the time it takes to actually fundraise and dilution and other factors that you consider. So I think if I were – I wouldn't change anything about how we do it stay classy. If I were to do it again, um, I'd raise, you know, probably – you know, 500 to a million dollars to start as a seed round just to get some good people around me. And then I would, um, you know, raise a series A that was pretty sizable, but I would wait to raise a series A until we had clearly um, achieved product market fit and, and um, you know, hit some, some, some milestones and, and prove some traction. Just because I don't want to, I mean, frankly, it's, it's more of like a personal reason. I don't want to waste people's money. Yeah. I actually care about making our shareholders money. Um, and doing what we say we're going to do. Like, I hate the, I actually hate the concept of a zombie startup. I cannot stand it. Mm-hmm. Just because I feel like it's such a cop-out. You raise a bunch of money and then you're like, oh, we tried. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess, uh, you know, it, was, it just wasn't growing fast enough. We'll try freaking harder. You just raise people's money, you know? Like, just don't raise money if you're not going to do that, you know? So, I, I, you know, I, I tie myself really closely to the shareholders. Uh, I care a lot about it. And I just, I think that, you know, if we had had that attitude that, oh, it's not growing fast enough, we would have killed this company like 10 times. Okay. Glad we haven't. Yeah. <laughs> it's still growing. It's growing much faster now than it was before. Um, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a uh, you know, it's a, it ebbs and flows and it's like, you're never going to just like figure it out. I mean, even the companies that appear like overnight successes, there's usually seven years of back history and challenges that they've gone through just to get to where they're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the anomaly like Instagram or something, but yeah, that's like point zero 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 one percent of all companies. So, yeah. I just, I just the, the the idea of the zombie startup and like people that don't really understand the context around that coming into it with that attitude, I think, is like the wrong way to go. And and partly, you know, lean startups to blame for that. And, and, and I love lean startup, but the mentality of like being able to assess something quickly and make a decision. Well, you can't always do that, especially, you know, you can test a button and say, uh, okay, this button's going to convert better on page X mm-hmm. by using analytics, but you can't, you can't always do the same with business. You can't mm-hmm. just say like, oh, we're going to give it like, you know, two months. And if we get X users because of X, Y, Z, that means it's ultimately going to be a success. If it isn't, then it's not going to be a success. That's just not true necessarily. And yeah. I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, it comes down to the people, it comes down to the market, it comes down to a lot of different factors and I think you got to really assess, um, you know, all of those things before making a judgment call to, to, to kill something. Um, and so anyways, I think like, 
you know, from a fundraising strategy, we had enough to keep going, um, but not enough to overspend or be reckless. And so we were essentially forced to grow uh, and think through important decisions with, um, you know, parameters and and some um, constraints, I guess. Um, And don't don't they say, someone said, constraints, breed innovation, and all that stuff. So it's kind of like the same. I think it's very similar. If you're just given like $40 million, you're like, oh, let's just like try, let's throw a bunch of shit against the wall and see what happens. Um, So, you know, we never had more than, uh, I think, $500,000 in the bank account ever for like years. Um, Until we built up up our own revenue. Where was most of that early money spent? Were you like very heavy on dev in the beginning or did you go, as soon as you kind of figured out your fit, were you just dumping money into like sales and acquisition? Um, yeah. How'd that break well, I down? I bought a Tesla when that came out. <laughs> um, it was spent mostly on dev. Um, yeah, it was mostly spent on dev. It was really, we were like, we still are very product oriented. In fact, like I didn't have, you know, we're engineers by trade and stuff. I'm, I'm an industrial engineer. So like more of like a process engineer. So um, I was doing a lot of the UX and stuff in the early days and, you know, love like the process flows and all that stuff. Um, and so just generally like our culture ended up being very product oriented, um, and not sales and marketing oriented at all in the beginning. Um, and so, you know, it took us years to figure out our sales and marketing strategy. <laughs> I mean, so we were like, we had like this, you know, what we thought was this kick-ass product. People love it. Like, why don't we have, where, where are we? Yeah. <laughs> and so it literally grew by word of mouth and inbound marketing for the first many years. We actually just spent our first dollar on paid advertising, uh, this quarter. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's all been, and, and actually that was another great like lesson because we did, we started writing blogs when we were talking about fundraising and we're talking about our product and we're talking about all these different things. And it, now it's like one of the most popular nonprofit blogs in the whole entire sector. Wow. And we get hundreds of leads a day through that blog still. Um, and we do all sorts of stuff like webinars and, and do all these things. Um, but that was like out of necessity because we didn't have money. So that's free. It's just, right. I mean, it's free. It's you have to pay for the yeah. salary, but um, a lot of that was before we were paying ourselves. So we just, we started to build up authority in the space and became a thought leader. That's invaluable. It takes a long time, but I mean, if you can even carve out like 10% of your time, just like, you know, the morning on a, on a Sunday or a weekend or something, just dedicated to like content creation and thought leadership um, on your blog, webinars, potentially prod- podcasts, um, writing answers on Quora, uh, things like that are, are really invaluable. And we get, still get tons of leads on Quora. I spent like a year trying to build some authority on there and literally get business all the time from Cora. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, yes. it's really, it's cool. We've talked to yeah. a couple of people who have done that same strategy and they said it's yeah. just a long tail. Yeah. It's so hard to do. Like in the beginning, the first six months to the first year, you'll look back and be like, did that do anything? Yeah. And it does end up working in the most weird ways. At first, it's like, oh, you know, like you'll get on the phone with someone or whatever and they'll say, oh, I heard you about somewhere. And then it'll come out, it was a Cora article. Right. Or it isn't always like a tr- it isn't always traceable. I guess okay. things, yeah. in the earlier days, like you don't really know what it's doing, but you just have to have faith that it is doing something, and it does have a net positive. I mean, people like people that have an opinion, have a stance, put stuff out there. I think that's hugely important. Um, and we could have even been louder. I think we were even. I think we were doing it right, but we weren't loud enough. Now we're very loud. Yeah. Um, and now what's even cooler is the paid advertising strategy is totally built on the on the content. So we're not going out with paid ads and saying, like, sign up and buy our software. We're like, hey, um, here's this awesome new guide we just published on fundraising psychology. 
Okay. You, they download it and it's locked behind a lead form, and we get you know we get them basically interested. We put them on our newsletter list and everything else, and start they they start to receive content on a weekly basis. So even that is actually a little bit of a longer play than just like forcing it down their throat. But we're supplementing now paid advertising to to give it a little bit of a boost. Okay. And accelerate the process a little bit. Um, uh, but in the early days, that wasn't even necessary. It's interesting, and it's the same funnel that you've probably optimized, I assume, exactly. right now through through content. Exactly. And now the money is probably being used very efficiently. Exactly. The only difference is that we, we have theorized that, okay, if we're going to pay something, then we should probably follow up with them a little bit earlier in the process. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Just so that we can like, measure it to make sure that there's an ROI there versus like two years later being like, remember that money we spent on those paid ads? Like, um, but besides that, it's the same same nurturing tracks. Like, you know, if we cool. get on the phone with them, they're still on the same email nurturing tracks and whatever else. Um, and we'll just say like, hey, what'd you think of the guy? We don't even, we don't even say like, it's almost, it's just, you know, it's, they're gonna know, for the most part, they're gonna know that you have a product, most right. likely. Um, not everyone does, but um, as long as you just, you just, you don't, you know, try to force it down the throat. You build a healthy relationship from the start on that first phone call. They don't mind the call. It's yeah. fine. Hey, you, you give, I gave you something, you give me, you know, one minute of your time. Sure. As long as you don't oversell it, they'll, that'll be a good thing for the next interaction, which might be us sending them an email, might be a call in, in, in three months from now okay. when they download the next guide, whatever it is. But I think that's, that's also hugely important. And I think because we were, we came from more of a product-centered um, culture, and not like a sort of sales shark mentality culture. I think we built all these sort of marketing tracks in the way that we would want to be handled, I think, rather than like forcefully sold to. Um, And I think that helped. We've got a lot of organic leads and organic customers and a lot of word of mouth because of that. Now we have a sales team um, and they're up to, this is a new thing within like the last eight months and that's really helped us accelerate growth. But um, you know, what they do is they look at people, look at the lead, the lead pool and people will actually say, I want to hear from you. So there's like, you know, when they're actually down there, a guy, there'll be a checkbox that says, I want to hear more. And so we're already like way down the, you know, way down the path of that relationship. Uh, and a lot of times they already have read the guide and they know more about fundraising or they know more about what we do. So the, the inbound strategy is an educational strategy as well. And the, the time that must be a lot easier. Exactly. By the time you get on the phone, they actually know what you're saying and the value prop. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's worked really really well that's cool that's yeah, awesome that's really i love that to hear well scott thanks so much for, for okay. coming on here and, and sharing this with us tell us where can we keep up with you and stay classy online um twitter cora um i love cora okay um, <laughs> what, what's your handles on that uh, just at Scott Chisholm. So okay. S-C-O-T-C-H-I-S-H-O-L-M. And we'll link to it and then you know you can you can you know, follow the Stay Classy um, Twitter account, whatever else uh, for news. We do, um, this isn't just fundraising, we do all sorts of like social effects sort of events and stuff with the community here in San Diego and in San Francisco. And a lot of us are on different boards and nonprofits are involved in social enterprise incubators and things like that. So anything social enterprise nonprofits, you know, come, come look us up. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you haven't yet, pop open iTunes and subscribe to be notified of future episodes. We have some really great ones lined up. And while you're there, leave us a review. We really appreciate each and every one of them. I don't want to write this down. I want to tell you how I feel right now. I don't want to take no time to write this down.